1: Manchester City result in Madrid leaves them scrambling to find out how much it'll cost to pry away Unai Emery. This is the Arsenal Vision post-match podcast. My name is Alex Smith, you can me on Twitter, Yankee Gunner. Bring Unai to the Etihad. That is the movement. That is the movement we are all starting because clearly, um, you know, we're, th- this is an Arsenal podcast, but, you know, in commiserations with the Manchester City fans who must be beside themselves today, I think it's only sensible, only right, only reasonable that we should support them in their quest to be better in cup competitions by getting the man who is the best at cup competitions, Unai Emery. And if that means Pep is out of a job, well, it's a cutthroat business. There is a place next to Mikel Arteta at Arsenal. If if he has the humility to learn at the feet of the master. Uh, I'm kidding. I may be getting over my ski tips there. But what a night of Champions League football. We will be discussing that. Uh, We will, of course, be looking ahead to the Leeds game, Liverpool-Spurs, lots to talk about. We'll just remind you, we are uh, running a little... That competition isn't the right way to put it. Just a request for reviews. If you would be so kind as to review the podcast on the podcast uh, app of choice that you listen to. But if you want to be entered to win a year of Patreon, we're going to give away a couple free years of Patreon. All you have to do is take a screenshot of the review. And again, like, I know a lot of people say, give us a five-star review. I would, of course, like a five-star review, (laughs) but like just whatever the honest review is, Um, but if you send us a screenshot of it to uh, email, contact at arsenalvisionpodcast.com or to a DM somewhere, anywhere, you can get in touch with the pod. Uh, We'll put you into a drawing for uh, a year of free Patreon. So enough admin. We're going to be hearing from Tim later to talk a little bit about women's football because uh, some big goings on as the um, women's season comes down to the final game and Tim will go through the permutations of how that plays out what's at stake how we got there and all that so you'll be hearing from Tim later it's um, it's just him in that segment but that's arguably the best possible segment imaginable so <laughs> you should enjoy it all right here with me now is Paul you can find my Twitter pause, my pencil pause
2: woohoo
1: woohoo indeed and Clive, you can find him on Twitter at Clive BFC hello Clive hello hello Hello, hello. All right. So, Clive, I I am hopeful that we will be in the Champions League next season. That remains to be seen. One day. Um, and I am hopeful that when we are in it and when we progress to the semifinals, it is not nearly as dramatic <laughs> as it was uh, for Manchester City this week and certainly um, not nearly as devastating. Look, I believe in the schadenfreude, as you know. I revel in it. And I, even I found my palms sweating at the thought of being a Manchester City fan, the way that game shook out. And I don't know how Pep manages to go full fraud in the Champions League over and over and over again. The, the tip should have been any, anytime time you get knocked out of a Champions League by Spurs, you should probably just throw in your managerial card forever and be done. But let's just talk about that game a little bit. This, we're going to talk Arsenal stuff, but I, I think it's too big a thing to, to not talk about it. And just first of all, like the emotion of watching it, did you find yourself as engaged in it and emotionally? Cause I had nothing at stake and I still found myself totally <clears throat> caught up in the emotion at that moment.
3: Yeah, absolutely. I, I look at city very closely cause you know, there are people that think we are the way we play is quite similar. Right? So, <laughs> so I'm always looking at them and uh, to see where they're going, to see where they're going wrong and see where, where they're going. Right. And so two or three things that really popped out to me on the, on the non-football side, the soft-factor side, that's the most amazing thing in sport and in life. You can just feel these things that just don't add up sort of occurring around you. And you can feel it and you can see it. This can't be stopped. So suddenly all the stuff we talk about, the analytical side, and where's that gone? And it comes down to human people, how they react to things around them and the emotions and the momentum of the crowd. I mean... I mean, crikey! Come on, man. All Cancelo had to do was clip it down the line, surely, and then uh, he's a throwing in the corner. He can settle down, but the way they play their principles, for example, they just didn't do that, right? So, the soft factor side of things is huge in football. In many examples, you know, where you just think it's your time and that's it, and it doesn't add up, right? So, um, and then there's the, the the football inside of me that comes to my brain, and. I often talk about the stability of fullbacks. And if they're ever there's a game when the fullbacks, once Carl Walker went off and the instability becomes obvious for everyone to see. And this is why I'll go on about this all the time. Your fullbacks are your stabilizers. And once they were made unstable, that game just changed in front of our eyes, right? So, um, mm. and then the last thing earlier, I think. Something that we've got to think about, maybe, and I'm interested what Paul thinks as well. When there was a moment to just miss out your build up and go direct, they didn't have that in their game, and I think they'll have it next year. We were six foot five centre forward, and I'm and obviously we care about this other team called Arsenal, and I think Mm. what are we going to do at the centre forward? Will we have that ability? Do we go tall? Do we add it? You know, and um, you know, my thoughts, I think we should, I think we should, you know, I like a multifunctional forward that can play both sides down the middle. And I want somebody that, that scares people with size and speed and whether it's a wing forward or straight up straight forward, I I don't really care, but I want all the tools in my toolbox, mate.
1: Yeah. I mean, to be fair, City are getting it, but they also happen to be getting one of the two best young attacking players in the world you know, or one of the one best, depending where you have Mbappe, where you have Holland. So like, it's easy to say, oh, we prioritized having a a direct route, having a, a big target man when you're actually getting a guy who's also clinical and pacey and technical and elite. And so I, you know, I, I think the question comes down to would they have gone for those traits if they had to go for someone like a Dominic Calvert-Lewin, for example, if they had to sacrifice quality where you then bring question marks into the, you know, in into the discussion to get that trait. I, I yeah. don't know. I mean the the thing that's interesting to me, Paul, so there's a few things here. First of all, the refereeing in this game, like I, I often praise the the Champions League refereeing as being an example of what, you know, England gets wrong, but there was there was a a strong uh Premier League quality to the refereeing in this game in terms of consistency and like the man who committed the perfect crime was Casemiro. I don't know how this guy. There are players that just have a way of doing it. The fact that he was able to get subbed off with no cards in that game when he had three orange cards, like is just beyond me. And I definitely look, I I think what Real Madrid did is absolutely incredible and and it, it the way they've gotten to the Champions League final um I mean, it's pure vibes. Like, they've been trailing in every single one of these ties. They they should have been dead and buried in multiple. I mean, City should have had five goals past them in the first leg alone. Um, but I'm curious if you cast a side eye at the refereeing. I mean, I, I don't know how... I don't like to lean into conspiracies, but I do think that UEFA has preferences in mind. Those preferences may be expressed to referees. Now, they may not be saying, hey, decide the match, but they may be saying if we can get you know Madrid into the final... That might be preferable. Madrid, Liverpool, I think globally might appeal more than Liverpool, Manchester City. Although Liverpool, Manchester City is a game I, th- I think I'd like to see again. But yeah, what, what do you think of the way that the match was refereed?
2: So I think referees know the right answer. Um, mm-hmm. it, it, if they're if they're refing on a somewhat kind of emotional basis to work out which has their ass covered at the end of this cluster. They know I think their the kids names call
1: that uh, they understood the assignment Is it what yeah. the kids say? Yeah.
2: They're, they're reading the room of uh, global football, and it doesn't mean they would do something totally corrupt, but they also know that when you're deciding how much extra time uh, injury time to add on uh, favor city or sorry favor Real Madrid over city I couldn't believe. I mean, he blew up 10 seconds before the official uh, injury time that was on the board, uh, despite the fact that the three minutes was of injury time was littered with time delays and other mm. shenanigans. Uh, um, yeah. The Casemiro thing, I think, was the thing that prompted my tweet that said, uh, elite football is one part uh, football, it's one part acting, and it's one part mime. Um, mm mm-hmm. They're not dark arts. They're the arts. Once you get into the Champions League, like that stuff might catch over. We've seen it not catch up with you during a league season. But if it's going to catch up with you, it's a league season because you got the same teams play, playing each weekend. Uh, kind of y- y- your crimes from the previous weekend have been on Monday night football. They've been on this. They've been on that. The referees are yeah. the same rats of referees. Everybody's got history. Now we've still seen egregious examples of it. But if you're going to have some level of karma for your behavior uh, in earlier games in the season, it may catch up. But in the Champions League, it's basically a one-off. Like, this is never going to catch up with that ref. It's never going to catch up with Casemiro. It's never going to catch up with Real, Real Madrid in a negative way in the sense they've got their win and they can go home. Um, yeah, the refereeing, the shenanigans. like. But these are... Uh, I don't want us to become that team during in the league and during the league, but we've seen some more professionalism coming into our game. That's just how it plays. And if and when we get into the Champions League, and if and when we become uh, repeat offenders in the Champions League and get into the later stages, I mean, you got to decide how bad you want to win this thing. Like it is, there is a skill to it, right? Uh, and there is a bigness to a club that allows them to get away from that stuff. I mean...
1: An beginning, you might say.
2: A beginning, right. <laughs> and Real Madrid, in a sense, have earned it. It's not fair yeah. because games should be fought on the basis of that game and those play. I'm not saying any of it's fair, but didn't we already know it's not fair? Um, but there is a kind of a a force that a Real Madrid brings and, uh, mm. so I'm not sure you're going to make it to the end of my, of the podcast, let alone my response. Well, I, I, I'm,
1: I'm, I'm going expert mute button usage. Thanks to the COVID today. Like, like you will not hear a single cough from me, but I, I will warn you that if I get the mute button usage wrong, it could get really, really gross. <laughs> on <this laughs> podcast. Um, as, as the, the coughing is yeah. happening entirely unbeknownst to everybody listening. Uh, Clive. So there's, there's a few things here that I I want to just ask you about before we we shift to more arsenal specific things firstly um i think like it's interesting how we get so focused on squad players and tim did a thing on patreon about how you build your squad and you know don't sign don't re-sign squad players go out and get players that elevate the level and one of the things that should be so clear at manchester city is they got two stars at every position so going to the bench is where you should really see their strength and depth, right? Because you you take off a Gabriel Jesus and you bring on a, a a Grealish, right? Or you take off a De Bruyne, but you can bring on a Gundogan. And, and so you should get stronger. But I thought, from a sub standpoint, it was a pretty wretched performance across the board. They got worse. And I don't know if it's the complacency. I don't know if it's difficult to ask players to come in. When it feels like the job's done, you could just say also this is the craziness of a low-scoring sport. City were there, Rodrigo gets two goals and clears one off the line, and all of a sudden you're you're in panic mode. But like you look at a Grealish, right? This is why I think the transfer market is such a, a tricky thing. And the idea of just pick the best players isn't a strategy. You really have to have good process because What they spent on Grealish, he does not look anything like a Manchester City player to me. Is it too soon to call that a bust? It feels really busty to me. And I just, I'm curious how you feel about that idea that, like, even a Manchester City whose spending should mean that their strength is depth, and it is over the course of a league season, really, I think, exposed them last night that they did not look good when they went to the subs bench.
3: Yeah, so a lot there, right? So let's talk about Greeley's first and foremost. So,
1: yeah, uh, I'd love to because
3: it's hilarious. release clock. <laughs> but he was literally a millimeter away from being a hero, wasn't he? Courtois' yeah, studs. Yeah, that's fair. That's fair. Yeah. yeah, and he had one clear off the line. And everyone said, what a great move. Now he's started. What a great bye-bye city. He's got him into the mm-hmm. Champions League final. He's the difference, right? And because of Courtois' long studs, he's not the hero today. He's the one that didn't get back on Rod- on the cross He didn't get back in quickly enough, and people are looking at him wondering if he actually fits right. And and you can come back to my little theory that I always say: it's important how you walk into the room. You walk into a room with a hundred million pound price tag. I don't care who you are, because there are people like Elliot Smith, awaiting to kill you, because you haven't done something. And you just, I just don't think he can meet expectations. I really just don't think he can meet expectations.
1: Clive, I'm willing to flip that paradigm, stand on its head give me a hundred million pounds and I will let Jack Grealish say mean things about me on a podcast. <laughs> and whether, to it,
3: that <laughs> whether it's Jack Grealish, whether it's Pepe, whether it's anybody that comes in that we feels that price sets an expectation. And I feel with the common man or woman, who's a football fan, we have expectations on people and those numbers are bandied about. And I just don't think the players can reach it. I really don't. And, um, perhaps for the game itself, the names may have changed, but the names changed and the roles changed, right? So there were spaces that were given in wide areas that weren't there in the previous part of the game. They played De Bruyne much higher and they brought on somebody to play lower. They double-sixed it towards the end. City never double-sixed it. Rodri ran out of energy. Foden ran out of energy. Walker ran out of energy. Um, Laporte ran out of energy. I mean, there were bodies everywhere on that pitch. And what, strangely... I don't know if this is by design, but Madrid got younger towards the end of the game and... I don't think City did, if you see what I mean. And they look slower. design,
1: because it's what they've done throughout the Champions League, right? They've really yeah. prioritized that energy at the end of games. Now, yeah, that could be point. post-hoc analysis because they've been trailing in a lot of these situations. Yeah, good they point. They have done that throughout the tournament, yeah.
3: But the, just look at the names of players they took off. Oh, huge names, right, and brought on these younger players, which we know a little bit about because we're nerds, right? But Kamavinga comes on that pitch again and just takes over the game. I mean, there are – Rodrigo, I mean – the the goal he scored, the header goal, is just something that was blessed by the gods, I'm afraid.
1: You know, how does that happen? He watched Coughlin, he watched Coughlin the night before, man. He, he oh, did, did, that, did you catch
3: the reflection, the little <laughs> deflection from yeah. Asensio, which basically means he was already in his headed movement, which basically yeah. means, I don't know how that happens. I can't explain it. Right? So... So it, I just think it's one of those things where the energy of um, Madrid and the momentum and the crowd and all the stuff you love in it, the sub-factor side of things, um, lately, <laughs> it just took over. And we were, watching, <laughs> we were watching something that was just like a film.
1: It really was like yeah, a film. It was. I mean, that's, and look, you know, it, it's kind of funny because being an American, one of the things you hear leveled at, football is oh it's too boring it's low, low scoring the whole thing and like it can deliver moments of sensational beauty and it can deliver exhilarating action sequences but i think it combines that with an ability to deliver drama that you just i don't know if you can quite reproduce it um and that is somewhat down to the fact that a single score can make all the difference and and by the way i think what we've seen in this tournament is that the away goals rule was a nonsense and, and totally unnecessary. And I think it's, we've, we've seen an improvement in the Champions League getting rid of it. Now, the other proposed changes to the Champions League I could do without. That's another story. Two, two more things from this game that I think are interesting. One, it pertains to Tottenham. So we'll get to that in a second. But the other thing is the question of Carlo Ancelotti. And th- this, to me, Paul, is somewhat relevant to Arsenal. We have this idea that there are good managers and there are bad managers, Right? And once you create that binary, you put yourself in a box. And then like the end of the movie, seven, someone comes up to you and says, what's in the box, man? What's in the box? Uh, No, that's not what happens. I don't know. know, It's Gwyneth
2: Paltrow's head.
1: A lot of antiviral medications. Uh, It it is. It literally is. Um, What an actress. What an uh, actress. So what I was going to say is that it puts you in this box of having to decide if managers are good or bad. So Unai Emery gets to a Champions League semifinal. Is he a good manager? Is he a bad manager? What is he? Well, it turns out he's someone who's actually really quite good in cups. He's proven that. He has, you know, a certain approach that. Rafael Benitez, I think, goes into that category. Um, Unai Emery has shown that at a big club where you have to balance priorities and where you have, when you have to be able to focus on the league or be the protagonist, maybe that wasn't a fit for him. Carlo Ancelotti is a great example of someone who I think shows that at some clubs, maybe the most important thing you can do is manage the people. And at some clubs, maybe the most important thing you can do is manage the tactics. You know, could a Graham Potter go manage um, uh, Real Madrid? I don't know that he could. Could Bruno Lage? don't know that he could. But they have what it takes at a Brentford, at a Brighton. Strike that, reverse it. At a Brighton, at a Brentford. And these are all very interesting things that we have to think about in terms of managers. I mean, David Moyes did a pretty good job at Everton, I think you'd say. We saw what happened when he went to Manchester United. And so it's not just good managers and bad managers. It's club fit. I mean, Klopp and Liverpool, every bit of it, the man management, the tactics, it's a fit. Now, I think Klopp and Pep, those are guys who are elite enough that I suspect they work pretty much anywhere, especially Klopp. Um, but I'm curious how you look at like an Ancelotti because I don't, in Carlo Ancelotti, for example, I don't see a guy I'd want at Arsenal because I think, Arsenal's at a stage where we probably need tactics to elevate the group. And I don't know that that's what Ancelotti does, um, but I could have that wrong. So how do you think about Ancelotti and how is the way you think about Ancelotti fit into a a heuristic about thinking about managers fitting in at certain clubs and the different criteria of what can make them a a good quality, a good quality manager. He says, rambling, not having a question, Paul, go.
2: Um, It's he's amazing as a manager. And he's all about fit, right? He fits certain clubs and does not fit other clubs, but also other situations. But he's also, I know he's now a legend status in that he's won the league in five different countries. and in the All five, five
1: major European leagues, whatever it is. Yeah.
2: yeah, which nobody else has done. And yet he's not really known as being a great league campaign manager. Like he tends to win it once, and then things kind of fritter away. He Tends to win with very strong squads in very strong clubs. Let um, me let me
1: rephrase it for you the way uh, a, a Twitter a Twitter person might understand what you've said because I think it might get lost in translation. He's won the Premier League and all four Farmers Leagues. Is how is yes, how that would be
2: said. yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I, including that fancy Spanish Farmers League.
1: All those Farmers Leagues. Yeah, yeah. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Yeah, go ahead. Sorry.
2: But but I think we're you look at his legacy and say, well, that was particularly impressive when you look at the details, is his Champions Leagues? Uh, yeah. What's he? He's at like five. Um, you know, I mean, Real Madrid strolled La Liga this year um, due to the absence of Atletico Madrid not showing up, a terrible Barca uh, only getting good at the end um you know there's kind of a bit of a story in each of his league campaigns as i understand it where he's he's won the league he's he doesn't go on to build a dynasty he's not like winning three of five he wins one then they kind of separate apart along the way um obviously he's the star whisperer um What could he have got out of whispering in Mustafi's ear? I'm not entirely sure. might have been interesting to see, but he just doesn't feel like a fit for us. But even at Real Madrid, um, his brilliant accomplishment this year will not be the league. It'll be the Champions League getting them to the final when they kind of on paper had no right to. And, you know, ironically, he's a cup manager like Unai Emery. He just happens to have won all the leagues. Um, Mm, Yeah. But... But by all accounts, he didn't do anything special to win those. You know, he won it with Bayern. He won it with Real Madrid. He took Chelsea when everybody in their team was twenty nine, thirty, thirty one, ready to go. And it was, it was him or United. And you know, Chelsea were the more ready. And he, he certainly didn't hold them back from winning it. Um, mm. You know, uh, and you know, Milan. So he's, and he. I think he won it like once at Milan. So. He's. He, it's not really his league campaigns. He, he's He's a fit for certain clubs with a lot of star players who are ready to be unleashed and fulfilled, and he's brilliant at getting uh, it, the dial up to 11 in the Champions League and winning the Champions League and yeah. you know, fair play to him. But to your point, it is about fit. Unai, not a fit for us. Uh, you know, we're not going to talk about Arteta right now because it's a big conversation. I think... he. As time goes on, I think he's a great fit for us, but that's a whole other conversation.
1: And it is why this whole thing of, oh, so-and-so's a fraud or so-and-so. I mean, look, Pep is clearly a fraud, but the rest of them, like, it's it's hard to say. Um, you know, like Ten Hag, I don't know what to make of Ten Hag. I think he's a pretty good coach. I have suspicion he's going to fail at United. Um, and I don't think that means he's not a good coach. You know, I mean, I, I look at PSG, and everybody leaves that place pretty much... Having looked like they failed because PSG's entire season is a cup competition, and anything can happen in a cup competition. Um,
2: and they take in so, a team that hasn't been tested in the league into the Champions League, and it's not really tested in the group stage. And they get to yeah. the the final stages, and they're not battle
1: tested. And you have the opposite thing here too. You know, I, I, you look at what happened to Manchester City last night, and you do wonder if in the last ten minutes of a game, the team that has to play the Premier League toe to toe with Liverpool every week maybe, just maybe, didn't have the sharpness to to keep it together against the team that, that hasn't been battling quite as hard. I and mean, maybe that's too narrative-driven because they had made a lot of subs and they should have been fresh enough. But I don't know, Clive. I mean, like, Ancelotti to me has always seemed a little bit like Italian arson Wenger in that it's it's a lot of vibes on the pitch and it's a lot of managing the egos and, and collecting good talent and getting them to row in the same direction. And, like, that's not to suggest that neither of them have tactics. I mean, maybe that's doing them dirty. But, like... But that can work. Like that's the point. That can work if you've got the talent to do it. That can work. So I do you have do you have a feeling about like Pep Guardiola versus Ancelotti? To me, seems like the ultimate battle of opposites in the sense of their philosophy about how to get your players to produce the best outcome. And in this particular instance, vibes vibes beat tactics is how I view it.
3: Yeah, know? and it could have gone either way, and. And they're doing it their way. And, and what I find really interesting is whenever they're managing their clubs, they are the, the men that the clubs revolve around. And it's interesting you said there that you see Ten Hag failing. And I, I see—I think Ten Hag's got a chance as long as Manchester United make him the most important person in the club. So on this podcast... They, we won't, had,
1: they won't do that, of course. Uh,
3: well, well <laughs> yeah. they need to if they're going to do something. Mm. And this is where I'm leading to, right? So we've had many a chat on this podcast, as amongst us three and Tim as well, where we, particularly you, Ella, you were very upset when Arteta went from coach to manager, right? And at the time, we we felt, you know, in various degrees, we felt that it was too much, and we were going back to the Arsene Wenger model, and and I I, I didn't really think it, think it was a big deal, but actually, I think it was a big deal. And uh, it was a big deal for these reasons, right? So what we have undertaken since that has happened, that move needed to happen. To do the surgery it needs to happen in our dressing room, in our club, Arteta needs to be the manager. He needs to be the most important person in the club. When we're losing games, he's overburdened. When we're doing all the right things and everyone's out of the dressing room and the no dickhead rule has been impl- implemented, and they're, they're all gone, we right? Do that so,
1: on the podcast too. Remind me.
3: <laughs> <laughs> and um, <laughs> you're talking to yourself, mate, <laughs> right? So, like, uh, so like, uh, and so awareness, <laughs> and and to do those things, he needs to be the guy that's the most important person in the club. And I think with Pep, he's the most important person. Klopp, most important person. When Ancelotti strolls in there as a manager of superstars, he's the guy, right? And I think it's very it's important for us to recognise that what's happened at our club, what's happening at other clubs. And if Manchester United want to make sure they are a success, they need to make sure that those funny-blowny guys with their big lumpy contracts that we never had any of in the past, did we? <laughs> um, they're not more important than these managers and they cannot chin him. And then, then then Tang Ha has got a chance to succeed. And that's what really needs to happen. And So whether it's vibes, whether it's tactics, I tell you what, they're two men with the club in their image and the team playing for them in their image. And I think that's the most important thing. You win some, you lose some, but at least do it on your terms, right? So that's where I am. Yeah,
1: and and to be fair, just to clarify one thing, I I may be a little harsh on Ancelotti and on tactics in general, because I think we've started to believe that only positional football is tactics and nothing else is tactics. (laughs) Like Real Madrid had tactics, and they were good tactics. And like Manchester City struggled to get into their passing game, I felt, because I thought... Real Madrid neutralized them well. And in fact... The referee
3: allowed to the page, them to neutralize them well. That, would that, that be fair? True.
1: But to be fair, that's that's shoe on the other foot in a way, right? Because nobody likes the tactical foul more than Manchester City. So maybe turnabout is fair play there. I mean, Manchester City pick up more Mate. fouls than any other team in the league. But yeah. Clive, I, I, I hate to say this. It pains me to say this. I felt like I was watching a little bit of Madrid meets Tottenham in this game because they sat Vinicius Jr., all the way on the touchline, just off the the center line, right? Right, just off halfway. And and they they played long to him over the top, tried to get him behind Walker. Now, Walker did a really good job by and large. But if you look at how Spurs have been able to beat City, I think they beat them twice this season. And they've had yeah. recent success with them. It's been going into Sun, right? Long over the top, finding Kane late arriving in the box. And, and that Vinicius to, to Benzema connection going long and trying to get get into that vacated space behind uh, Walker or or when Walker drifted inside because obviously Pep likes to bring his his fullbacks into the interior like that that was a clear plan and I think only because of Walker's incredible electric pace which eventually led to him needing to come off and I think that wound up making a difference in fact yeah I mean th- those tactics worked and I, I do think it's instructive in in watching how Spurs beat City, and I wonder if Ancelotti looked at that a little bit because in both legs I thought that that was something they tried to do, and it the pattern looked very similar to what I saw Spurs do to City when they were able to beat them
3: twice this yeah. season. Yeah, the space is down the sides, right? And I keep I keep mm-hmm. so I keep saying this, right? But having that stability in those positions, when you have it, you just look you look elsewhere and you look at other things in your team. When you don't have it, your eyes are in those fullback areas and they don't leave them. Right, so as soon as it goes, it stretches your center mids, it stretches your center backs, so and you get gaps. People run through. They arrive late. It's all there, mate. It's all in the fallback spaces, right? And
1: um, and I will say vulnerable there, by the way, because we we when we beat Barcelona, <laughs> we beat them up the up those spaces. I mean, Theo Walcott yeah. was Pep said he was the most scary player that we had when we played.
3: Yeah, people don't. They they want to feel stable. They want to see you. They don't want to see you running past them, through them, around, oh, and stretching you out. They want to see where you are. They can go and press you. Go and get you. Right. So, so yeah. And I and I have I will say this, and I'll say this now. You know, Liverpool, they're sort of made for Spurs. Do you know, do you know, I, mean, I, I don't want to say this on a, but I, you're all I can see you're nodding so you sense the same well, thing let's transition
1: right? to this chat is that because of Tra- Alexander Arnold I mean that space behind <sighs> him is how you hurt Spurs and that's right where Son's going to try to park himself
3: so the other day when when Liverpool got uh, rumbled a bit by Villarreal the big difference was Jordan Henderson didn't start that game so when Jordan Henderson starts tr- he's like Trent's bouncer so Trent can go wherever he goes wherever he wants and Jordan Henderson becomes a right back he becomes wherever Trent isn't he goes he fills in those spaces they played Cater on the day and he doesn't have that same defensive instinct and as soon as they stabilising Trent was tremendous in the second half for me he's the best right back in the world for that team whether he's called a right back or you, you create a box where he plays in and that's his position and in that position he is with a he has no peer in the game of football I trust me don't think of a position. Think about the role that he plays. And, and Jordan Henderson allows him to do that, right? So if Jordan Henderson plays and Trent plays, they'll be fine. Um, but if they do anything funky, which I don't think they will do because it's too big a game for them and they know City are going to be shaky, this is their moment to really put the squeeze on, right? So, um, But yeah, if you look at Spurs, they are sort of made for that. Double 10, box midfield, counter, Harry Kane dropping in once on the piston, someone drops in behind. They're made for that. But they also have Ryan Sessignon and, and Davis and players like that and who I don't think are very good, who I don't think can manage the, the waves of attack that Liverpool are going to put upon them. And Liverpool now, if you're a Liverpool fan or anyone in that club, you're thinking the planets are aligning you know they are aligning to do something which has never been done in the in the game of football, right? So not in England anyway. So they are they are really close. You know, one mistake from a really bruised city, and they're in. And, um, so yeah, they're not going to blow that. Hopefully on Saturday night. <laughs>
1: um, well, let's let's touch on that, Paul. Like the the I I don't know if I'm more nervous for the Leeds game or Spurs game with Liverpool. Because every scenario I've concocted in my mind for how we get to top four has presumed Liverpool beating Tottenham. But back when I was counting us as finishing top four a couple months ago, it presumed City beating Tottenham, and that didn't happen. Um, I, I can see the argument for Liverpool being a very bad matchup for Spurs defensively but I can see the argument for Spurs being a bad matchup for Liverpool defensively, except for the fact that Liverpool have something that even Manchester City don't. And that's Virgil van Dyke. And I don't think that Harry Kane, God, I'm about to speak this into existence and p- please just forgive me. <coughs> I don't think that Harry Kane is going to get the better of Virgil van Dyke arriving late in the box, things like that. Like, I don't think that's going to be the issue. I do think that the space in behind Trent is always the issue, obviously. And, and Son, who's in absolutely electrifying form, is going to be going at the Konate, Alexander-Arnold side. And that's, that's where the danger comes from. But like, I still think Spurs will have a hard time winning the game if they concede six or seven. And I think that's in the frame. I think that is. I think their defense is beatable. I think most teams that go at them get punished at the other end with counterattacks, but don't have the firepower to to hurt Spurs when they have the dominance. And I think Liverpool have the, do, the the firepower to hurt Spurs. I don't think Spurs play out from the back well. They want to be direct. That's going to be the thing. Can Liverpool's press work, or can Spurs get the ball over the top, beat that press, and get get Liverpool running back at their own goal with Son and Kane and Koleshevsky? you know, going at them. My instinct is that, that it's still not going to matter. Cause, cause Liverpool can, can hurt them enough in attack. And I actually think the VRL game might've been instructive for Liverpool. Cause to, to Clive's point, I think Henderson will come back in to be the minder for Alexander Arnold. And I think Diaz will start because I think as much as I rate Jota a lot, I think Diaz has just proven like what he can do off the dribble to destabilize defenses. So do you have a feel for how this game will go? I mean, like, like I said, I am almost more nervous for this than the Leeds game. And I'm, I'm curious if you feel similarly about its import and also about how it might go. Uh,
2: yeah. I mean, I think it's huge. This weekend's huge. And I think I'm okay about it. I'm not super nervous. Um, I think super nervous. (laughs) I think Liverpool are going to fucking batter Spurs. Now, it may not be score-wise they batter them, but they'll, I think they'll beat them fairly comfortably. But in terms of the game, I think it'll be like watching a boxer body punching. Um, I, I think they're just going to be all over them. Um, and like they know how Spurs score goals, and they have the players to snuff out those two players who make that happen. Um, they're so equipped in midfield. They're so equipped defensively. Um, and the fact that everybody knows that Trent Alexander-Arnold um, behind him is the the spot you target if you're Spurs, well, that's all right. That's a trap set too. You know where Spurs are going to play. You know where to snuff out Harry Kane trying to hit Son. You know where Son's going to be trying to play. And you make sure that, that you have it covered. And that's why Henderson has to play, I believe. Um, our Leeds game... Um, I think that's going to be okay. I think we're going to have our twelfth man. I think the the holy trinity that we have right now between the manager, the players, and the supporters. Um, I I don't think Leeds are that good under Jesse Marsh yet. I think he's a long way to go. I I, I think that. Yeah, go ahead.
1: I was just saying if you don't mind, we're gonna do a whole section on the Leeds game. So yeah. uh we just gotta do a little admin before we get there. So final thoughts on the Liverpool Spurs game and then we'll then we'll shift gears.
2: Yeah. So look, I, I actually want to say something on the Tim thing about the um the squad players, because I think it relates to that. Oh,
1: okay. Um well then why do, uh, relates to the Liverpool Spurs one or do you wanna do it related to Arsenal specifically? It relates I have to that li- as a talking point, also.
2: Okay, actually. yeah. That,
1: let, Just to tip my hat here.
2: Yeah, let's <laughs> leave it at that. I, I think okay. Liverpool are going to smash Spurs. Maybe not totally in, reflected in the scoreline.
1: <laughs> it is interesting, right? Like, there's this narrative that Spurs are worse against bad teams and good against good teams, and like, there's a part of me that's sort of like, that's that's not a thing, but it is a thing. They beaten City twice. They drew Liverpool in their last game. Um, granted, ten men Liverpool. It's, Robertson sent off in the 78th minute, but like. It, it is it is a little scary, but having said that, like wouldn't it be the spursiest thing ever to go get a result at Anfield, lose to us, and lose to Burnley, and be out of top four? Like that's, I would accept that outcome as well. But I I think it's going to be an interesting weekend in the sense that we go second, and the psychology of the Leeds game if Spurs have lost, and the 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 raucous atmosphere at the Emirates and the excitement to go into the derby with a five-point cushion is going to be huge. If somehow Spurs pull something off at Anfield, I think it's going to create a much more tense atmosphere that will be a little harder to manage for the players, and and the fans will really have to lift them. But we'll see see how that goes. I think the psychology of going second is interesting. Um, I'd almost rather we go first, and and you know have that five point gap and, and put put Spurs to the sword there a little bit, but th- this weekend is obviously pivotal. So we'll we'll talk more about this game, and I do want to talk about the squad players because I think that's that's a big talking point. And don't forget, Tim is coming up uh, at the end with his own section on Arsenal Women and the final day of the season and everything still to play for. But I think it is important uh, before my voice gives out and I start uh, launching into a coughing fit to let you know that this podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp. Life can be overwhelming and many people are burned out without even knowing it. Symptoms can include lack of motivation, feeling helpless or trapped, detachment, fatigue, and more. Um, I I used to be a lawyer like long, long time ago. And uh, if you know, you've watched the live streams or anything, you know I'm 37. But uh, somehow I was uh, in New York City when 9-11 happened. And just a, a horrifying moment in my life and I was trying to be a lawyer, it was a very tense time. And you tell yourself you're coping, but I wasn't coping I wasn't coping, and I was burned out and you know not to make this about me, there are obviously people that went through horrors at that time and and it's just one of those things though that you can tell yourself that you're supposed to handle all of these challenges and that you're coping, and maybe that's the pandemic you've been going through or you know something at work or whatever it is. I wasn't coping. I wound up burning out, I wound up quitting, I wound up moving that didn't fix it. I turned to therapy and that was when I turned a corner. And I just, I I wish that people felt more comfortable about using therapy and BetterHelp makes that achievable, makes it achievable to find an expert in a field that can work with what you're struggling with, achievable to find someone who will talk to you on camera or not on camera if you want. Um, So whether you're experiencing burnout or whatever the issue is, talking with someone can help you figure out what's causing stress in your life. And BetterHelp is customized online therapy that offers video, phone, and even live chat sessions with your therapist so you don't have to see anyone on camera if you don't want to. It's much more affordable than in-person therapy and you can be matched with a therapist in under 48 hours. Arsenal Vision Podcast listeners get 10% off their first month at BetterHelp with the promo code, uh, pardon me, not a promo code, let's get this right, betterhelp.com slash vision. That's Better betterhelp.com slash vision, Slash vision. Go there now. And one more thing before we go. Um, you know, taking care of yourself is important. Taking care of your business, obviously important as well. And if you want to have the best team, well, there's no I in team, but there's an I in Indeed. And Indeed is the hiring partner that lets you attract, hire, interview, strike that, reverse it, attract, interview, and hire all in one place. Indeed is the hiring partner with uh that saves you hours of time on multiple job sites searching for candidates with the right skills. Indeed can help you do it all. Now, I want to say, as someone who's looked for jobs online and done like you have no idea what to apply to or am I going to get past their algorithm or whatnot, one of the things I like is Instant Match. This is a really cool tool that Indeed has because with Instant Match, over 80% of employers get quality candidates whose resume on Indeed matches their job description the moment they sponsor a job, according to Indeed data. So in other words, you sponsor a job post and you can invite people to apply to your job. And I think that creates a much stronger relationship with the applicant because they see you as wanting them and vice versa. Much better process. Now, the cool thing is with instant match, uh, as soon as you're matched, uh, pardon me, as soon as you sponsor a post, you get quality applicants that meet your must-have requirements or else you don't pay. So if you don't get it, you don't pay. So that's a policy that I think would be great for a lot of business, but indeed uses it. So let me give you some data here. Candidates you invite to apply through instant match, this makes sense, are three times more likely to apply to your job than candidates who only see it in search, according to US Indeed data. Okay, so that's pretty cool. Uh, Join more than 3 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent. Start hiring now with a $75 sponsored job credit, he says as his voice starts to go, to upgrade your job post at Indeed.com slash BlueWire, Offer good for a limited time. Claim your $75 job credit. Now, at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Pre-pay uh, per qualified applicant. Not available for all users. Need a hire. You need Indeed. Clive! Is that enough of that?
3: Indeed. Indeed.
1: Whew. Yeah, the, uh, the COVID. It's winning. It's <laughs> winning. Uh, let's keep going, though. <clears throat> I am undeterred. Clive. So, the, the Leeds game is, it, it's, it's the trap game to me. I know Paul had referenced that maybe the West Ham game was a trap game. This is the trap game. We got through three really difficult games, right? Two London derbies, um, two very big club games. We, we righted the ship. We're on this three-game win streak, and the derby is next on the horizon. And it feels like a top-four decider. If we can just get through this. And especially if Spurs do lose at Liverpool. Because we'll we'll have one eye on the Derby saying, if we can win that, we're in the Champions League. But not without this game. And the question is, how you get focused. Now, I think the, the crowd will... Have, I'm so glad this is a home game. Because I think the crowd will be really up for it. I'm curious if you think the... The manager needs to take a slightly different approach than he has from the last few games. Like a Mohamed Elneny against bigger teams that are going to come at you, pose you a little more threat. Do you need the incisiveness of, of a Samuel Laconga more? Do you, do you look to get another creative or attacking player on the pitch? Do you go back to a Lacazette, God forbid? I, I mean, I don't, I don't think that's going to happen. But do you freshen it up to keep the mentality focused ahead of the derby, or do you just go with what's working? How do you, how do you think he approaches this? Not just in terms of the talent on the pitch, but making sure, this isn't one of those games where a half hour in, we're looking at it going, wake up, you know?
3: <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm, well, I'm worried for every game at the moment, but I'm super worried for this game because we've all got these scenarios in our mind, right? So if Spurs get a point, we're going to be all devastated, thinking, oh, my God, we're mm. devastated. If Spurs lose, we're going to be thinking, we need to be five points ahead. And if we're not five points ahead, we're going to be devastated. Right. So basically what I'm trying to say in summary is every emotion is going to be exaggerated beyond our belief. And just, just go back to the, the bare facts of this, right? Um, we have the youngest team in the league with the youngest manager in the league. Every, I don't want exaggerated emotions. That's what, I don't yeah. want that because I'm unsure of the outcome. Right, so football has enough variables without that, and we saw last night against with an expensively assembled team, what can happen when the emotions are out of control? Right, so I there is a there's a moment in time coming, and I don't think it's going to go the smooth path we want it to go. The smoothest path: the ball is Spurs lose, we win on Sunday, and we trot across to North London, and we go and win there, and we just celebrate the last two games. Right, so that's what right, I'm we're in. That's,
1: can, nope. No, you said it. I'm taking it. That's
3: it. Can't yeah. That's take the, it back. No that's, the, that's the path to green, they call it, right? That's the path to green. And, but I just don't see it working like that. And, and in some ways, this is what I want to see happen. I want us to uh, look, I'll take the five point gap. But I also know the mentality of, of people. If you know you don't have to win something, that that bothers me too. You know, I want us to go to Spurs knowing we have to do something. I think it's really important for the the next few games because Newcastle's not going to be easy, and Everton may not be easy, right? So we need to go there with a level of we need to do something there, right? So the Leeds game worries me a lot because it's a sunny day. It's going to be a sunny day in London on Sunday. Two o'clock kickoff. That's enough time for a drink before and after. It could be huge. It could be huge, and I shall be doing both of those things: drinking before and after. It could be huge. I, I'm worried about the tension surrounding this. One bad pass, how are we going to react? Everybody's been so nice to each other. We've been so unified, but it's getting close now. And we're, we're individually invested. And that emotional investment that we've all, we are all going through at the moment, will come out. And I hope it comes out in a positive way, but I'm also... Really concerned it's going to come out negatively, and we saw a brief, we saw a brief view of that, didn't we, in the three-game stretch? And you know, we were worried about our points total. Elliot, if you were thinking low sixties, and you know that's when the no, models I, had I us. Said
1: that, that- People worrying were thinking low 60s. I still believe mid-70s <laughs> and top floor is comfortable. I, yeah. I, and there's no possible hey. way you could ever check to see what I thought. So yeah,
3: exactly. And powers. But hey, look, it, it's all part of the emotional journey we go on, right? So I don't mean to like pick on it because that could easily have happened. Please do. We didn't well, see sir. the Manchester United, Chelsea and, and West Ham games going like they did, right? So, um, so I can't see the path to green being smooth. I just see us having okay. to hang in there fight scrap like West Ham to try to get what we need to get to get to the promised land. And I'm not sure what their day is going to be.
1: Yeah, I mean, here's the funny thing, right? I'm just going to throw this out in the world and I know people are going to hate it. I I don't think we're playing that well. And I don't think it matters. And I've said this before. There is a time in the season when you want to see good process because if you see good process over 38 games, you think it's going to produce results. I don't give a crap how we play right now if you wake me up full time and we've gotten the points it's all i care about the 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 cause for nervousness now is that i just feel like we're riding we're riding the wave of emotion and chaos and hoping for the best and like i look at the three game losing streak and apart from the first half against palace i don't know that we were ever that bad you know we weren't we were dull and in the three game winning streak i don't know that we've ever been that good you could watch those games again, and if I told you they all went the other direction, you could see the moments where they could have. And and that's fine. That's football, and at this stage of the season, I don't care. But as a result, I don't feel confident in saying we've cracked it, and now we just go... Like, when we were playing well in February and March, I thought we'd cracked it. And obviously, a big part of that was the players we had available back then. Thomas Party, huge difference. Lacazette was playing in a way that was usable. Uh, Kieran Tierney was available. And as a result, I really felt we cracked it. Right now, I feel like... I don't know what to expect. I don't exactly know where the good play is going to come from, but I'm just hoping it does. Clive, you want to weigh back in? We'll, we'll
3: yeah, uh, uh, this is my worry, right? You never crack it. You never crack the game. I would say it's similar to golf. As soon as you think you've got it cracked, you end up in the trees, right? You never crack it. You just have to focus on what you're doing and your details to keep that yeah. ball on the fairway, right? So this is this is my this is my worry, mate. And my worry is we're building pathways in our mind and it's what I was going to ask you earlier, we're building pathways in our mind and it never goes that way. And what I was going to ask you is even those three game losing streaks, there is a, 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 there is a sense of control within within our games. There's a, you can call it false control, but apart from the first half in palace, if you look at those games again, we weren't that bad. And in, in the in, nope. in the three game winning streaks we weren't that bad. Within those games, we have enough control to win the game. And that's been a constant, constant theme for months. You know, and um, we have controlled in in a, whether it be false or obvious, we have controlled I destiny in, in a lot of football matches. You know, Mm. we may not have had the periods, length of periods that we wanted to have, like against Liverpool, for example, we couldn't quite last it out. Man City couldn't quite last it out. But there is a level of control here. And I think that's what we need to focus on. How are we controlling games? Can we repeat that? What's the reasons for it? We've done it with different players now. There's an, although we're all petrified, there's an encouraging underlying trend about how we're controlling football matches, even though he doesn't feel that that's way. Fair.
1: Uh, yeah, no, that's fair, Clive. I would say that what worried me about the three-game winning streak a little bit was this this fragility in our defense that sort of started to show up, and we saw it in the losing streak as well, just sort of a helter-skelter quality to defending. Tomiyasu coming back, and presuming he's actually available for the Leeds game, I think really, really helps with that, because I think having both Cedric and, and Nuno in the game obviously makes the edges really fragile. And those are the areas in modern football that get attacked and and are the most exposed. Um, and Tomiyasu coming back, I think, just really tightens that up and makes it easier to protect Nuno's side a little bit more. Uh, but you have a shutdown defender on the right side, and, and it makes the center backs feel a lot more comfortable. Obviously, Ben White being back would be helpful, although Rob Holding did a perfectly acceptable job. Paul, this, this is a time to, to the point that you kind of want to get to, though, where we are asking squad players and squad players who probably are right at the very end of their arsenal career potentially <laughs> to get us over the line to Champions League we're asking Eddie and Kedia to do it we're asking Mohamed Elneny to do it we're asking well maybe Cedric to do it we're asking Rob Holding to do it and i'm curious you know you said you disagreed so i will frame Tim's argument from the Patreon pod quickly so that you have something to sort of rebut or, or respond to. Yeah, because I don't it, really
2: I, I, so- I don't really disagree. I well, agree. I'm disagree. Okay.
1: Sure. So because I sort of I find Tim's argument to be compelling, and it's sort of how I think about it, which is in general, you don't go get squad players, right? I think what you want to do is you look at your squad. It's one thing if you're like already right there competing for a title and you're like, we just need to add that little bit of depth. But if you're where we are. Every move you make should try to elevate the ceiling of the club and take it up another level. And so, you know, when I look at like what Liverpool did as they were building their team, and we always point to Liverpool, but you can understand why, right? Because right now they're the apotheosis of value based squad building. And they when they went and got a Jota, or when they went and got a Luis Diaz, or when they got a Thiago, or when they got a Nabi Ceda, who again, you know, that hasn't worked out so much. These weren't players they were getting to just be. 30-year-old guys to kind of have some minutes if someone got injured. They were guys who could come in, push the starters, and make a case for themselves to be the guy. Right? Diogo Jota came in and made himself playable ahead of Firmino. And Luis Diaz has come in and potentially made himself playable over Jota. And Thiago Alcantara, like one of the best central midfielders over the last decade, comes into a team that was pretty well established and people said he doesn't fit their system, he doesn't fit their... And he came in and he said, I'm going to make this position mine because I'm just better. And so... Whether you're talking about keeping an Enkedia or keeping an Elneny, you know, you can say, Paul, like, a El Elneny is a good, solid pro, 30 years old, good glue guy, good in the dressing room, keep him. But I don't want a guy who can just come in and be a glue guy. Go get another central midfielder who can come in and say to a Thomas party or say to a Granite Shaka, I'm going to make one of your places mine. And I'm going to earn it. And I'm going to take the whole thing up a level. And then kind of like what Liverpool have, if that guy's not available, oh, guess what? Only Thomas Partey coming back in to start, or only Granite Shaka. not can Elneny give us 90 good minutes here with the season on the line. And to be fair to Elneny, he has given us those minutes. But you see what I'm saying, right? I, I I think we're at a stage of our project where the squad, what we should be going out and buying is just the best available talent. And they elevate. Don't go get guys or re-sign guys with the idea of, if I need him in a pinch, they can give me sixty minutes, you know,
2: sure, so uh, I listened to Tim's section. I agree with it. I nodded along all the way through, and I think some of it's a bit of a reaction to actually the squad players we're talking about holding El Nenny and Eddie. and I don't think Eddie really fits in with the other two because we don't actually know what his ceiling is, but that doesn't necessarily mean we should sign him, resign him if he's willing. But I do think it's a reaction to our squad players. Because if you look at, like, it, it, what's interesting is you, we keep referencing Liverpool. Liverpool re-signed squad players. James Bloody Milner. Yes, like, yes, of course. He, he, he's the ultimate El Neni, right? Um, now, he's getting on in his career, but he's been re-signed, like, 17 times, and he's not a starter. Um, I, what was Minamino I mean I don't think sorry let me kill that for a second mm. I don't think Minamino was signed to replace Mo Salah or Mane they needed some depth what was Oxlade-Chamberlain I don't think they ever thought he was going to be the starter he was mm. a guy to push them some young legs blah 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 but I don't think they thought he was going to be Naby Keita um, you can go like they got squad player like City they got Nathan Ake do not tell me they bought him to be a starter. Mm. Um, like, they used to have Fabian Delph, one that easily comes to mind as your classic James Milner. Uh, you know, Zinchenko's from their academy, so no problem with that. One. But still, he's not... It, it, to me, he's the second guy, is not the first guy. So, But that's not me saying, I think we should re-sign uh, Mo Elneny. I mean, I think he's a not- I think the reason we should buy... Uh, resign Mo Moel Nenny is because we simply have too many players to sign, and we can't guess to where we get a better player. But I would absolutely love if we upgraded on Mo Nenny. I would love if we upgraded on Rob Holding. Um, you know, I would love if if the there's decision a, was there's uh,
1: a league on young player of yeah. the year candidate who would like to come in and be that guy. I think. Well, would I don't know. Absolutely
2: like love it. Yeah. Absolutely love if Saliba came in and those three guys. Do I mean, do I see that happening? Whole other conversation. So I fully agree with Tim, but I think Tim would also have to um, incl- broaden his discussion a little bit to say, but every squad has some level of. We're, the question is, where are we at? And we're at a place where everybody's a few squad players, but we need more guys. Pushing the front. One of the reasons I would look at Eddie and Ketia is if you look at City, if you look at Liverpool, they got six, seven players who can play in the front line in a few different positions. Now, I don't think Eddie is going to happen. It may not be the right thing to do, but he can play in two or three positions. So it does make it more interesting for me.
1: Clive?
3: Yeah, a, bit, a little bit on this. I remember when I was close to a pro club, they were looking at bringing in a new new sort of academy kids, and a kid would come in, and, he, and he'd do really well, and, and I would say, well, he looks good enough to play. But he said, nah, the way we look at it is there are three sections to the squad. and It's like a life model as well, right? Those who are thriving, those who are striving, and those who are surviving and the ones who are thriving are in the top third of our squad when we bring somebody else in new they have to fit into that top third of the club and then everything drops down and i've always kept that in my mind when we think about squad building bringing in people into that thriving section because then some people who are seen to be thriving or striving suddenly have to think they drop down level and they become maybe people that develop into rotational players. So I think that there's different ways to approach it. And one thing that we haven't really thought about, well, maybe we have thought about it, but just in the back of our minds, is we're managing a season that's a 30, or 42 game season, something like that this year. And we could be doing a 55, 60 game season next year. And that changes everything. You know, Ben White has played every league game until the other day, and he's had a bandage on for a month. We would have liked to have rotated him a little while ago. Gabriel, when he had his, when he had his little baby, you telling me that if we had better cover, that he would have not had a week a game or two off. We had to play him through it, you know, and it maybe cost us a bit of Palace. Do you know what I mean? And so there's room for players that can fill in, you know, that can that can rotate. You know, Liverpool have three stellar centre backs, Kanate, Matip and Van Dyke, and they've got Gomez as the fourth. If we bring you know, we're gonna have a similar setup next year if Sleever comes back, also we've got Tommy as who can do a job. So we have to maybe spend money on the right back. And so you develop a squad, you develop a rotation within the squad and you try to keep your quality in at the right places, in the right age profile, right motivations. And make sure you have enough people that are thriving or striving. And what we had historically recently, we had people just filling up spaces, collecting their money and buying houses in different parts of the world on big yeah. overpaid money, which we you don't want to go me go through that again. And now we've got rid of that. So I think it's um it's really interesting to see the next phase of what we do. And I generally don't mind Um, I got some ideas I'm sure we'll talk about over the summer, but I I do see us adding to this with a little bit more intelligence at the right age profile to allow development, to allow natural rotation with the right set of qualities, and I'm so excited for it.
1: Yeah, and and I want to be clear, right? Like The funny thing is, I wouldn't regard re-signing Elneny as a big mistake. Right, like Things don't fall into the bucket of huge win or big mistake. There's lots of different buckets. For me, the irony is, I actually think re-signing El Neni is a closer call than re-signing Enkedia. I wouldn't re-sign Enkedia Because I think up front, we need more firepower. We need to give more minutes to the young players we're developing. If you said to me, well, what happens if we're down a striker? I'd rather let Martinelli have a go there or even give Fuller and Balogun League Cup minutes or Omari Hutchinson or wh- whoever it is. You know, I, uh, like my point is—that's probably not the person. But th- you know, my my point is, I think that the downside to to re-signing a twenty-three-year-old who's desperate for minutes and you're going to have to play and and is getting near the prime of his career—traps is you, doesn't it? It does. Whereas a thirty-year-old Al who has proven, hey, I like being at Arsenal. I'll take a wage that I'm probably not going to get somewhere else, but doesn't hurt your wage structure. If you want me to play 15, 20% of the league minutes, I'll do that and I'll work my butt off and I'll be good in training and I'll be a good guy in the dressing room. Like there is value to that because that's hard to find, right? The problem is the guys you can usually bring in to be squad players are either so past their best that you don't want them or they're young kids and you can't depend on what their contribution is gonna be, right? Like if you sign a 17, like look at Samby. We signed Samby, he's one for the future. Well, now we're at the sharp point of the season. We need him. Party's out. We don't know if we could trust him, so we're using Elneny. So I actually regard keeping an Elneny, kind of like a Milner situation, a utility player, break glass in case of emergency, not expensive to keep around, fine. Whereas keeping a young player going into his prime who might block other young players players' paths to minutes or keep you from going out and signing additional elevating talent like the Jodas and the Luis Diaz's that Liverpool did, I actually regard that as a bigger mistake, so to speak, because if you never use El Elneny next season and he was literally just an emergency option, everybody's fine with it, including Elneny. That is not going to be the case with Eddie Nketiah if you re-sign him. So, Paul, I think I think these things are situational and as you think about squad building, when you think about keeping guys around who maybe don't elevate, I think the question is, if I never use them, would that be an okay outcome? And so if you re-sign Elneny on a reasonable wage and you wind up never needing him next season, everyone including Elneny might think that's an okay outcome. But that's not the case with Enkedia. And so I think if you don't regard the player as good enough to make a push for first team minutes, but you're going to need to use him, I would move him on and get a guy who could push for first-team minutes or give those minutes to someone who's pushing. And Alex Iwobi is a good example. He is a very good player who did very good things for Arsenal. We sold him for a very fair fee. And by selling him, one of the knock-on effects is that Bukayo Saka came into the first team and had a path to minutes. I think that was a critical step in the project we're currently on. And, and so, you know, it's, it's all part of, you know, the, I think the thing that gets missed, Paul, and and then I'll stop talking. There's opportunity cost. A lot of people see it as we should either have the player or not have the player. But what's missed in the calculation of should we have the player is if we have the player, what's the opportunity cost? What's the player we don't go get? Or who's the player who maybe doesn't get minutes? Because those calculations are important as well. It's not just, hey, if we let Nkedia go, then he's just missing. Someone comes in to fill that space. And I think that's, that's got to be part of the calculation.
2: Sure. I like 100% agree with all of that. I don't actually think if I'm the club that I should re-sign Eddie and Kedia. I would love us to go out and get the two best forwards we can out there. Um, I'd also like us to find somebody better than Mo Elneny because while he's on this purple patch and like he's been pretty good the last couple of games... He's so, so limited. Can we remember all the games in which he was the definition of mediocrity, which is like the cruelest of words? And like, if he promises to play this purple patch football, which is, you know, fairly good, um, great. But he can't do that. Like we, we got to remember who he is. Uh, of these guys, the guy I'd keep is Rob Holding. um. But even that, um, you know, I'm all up for an upgrade. I just think with Eddie, like a scenario where, you, where, we ha- where Eddie was the option and Eddie was willing, I'd be okay with it because I think he can fit into six attackers uh, doing a job. I just don't think it's going to work out for him. I would hope that we have better ideas for who our uh, type A and type B strikers are. But I I wouldn't be broken hearted if it all fell through. We got one striker and we mm-hmm. kept Eddie around because I think we can use him in a number of ways. But that's not me saying I think Arsenal should be uh, trying to keep Eddie as one of their two strikers. I think he can do it. Like you need six attackers, and if we, for example, lose Pepe uh, this this summer, and it you know we kind of got it because we're not really using him to anything like his potential then you've got what have you got you got saka you got martinelli you kind of got smith rowe even if you get your two attackers am i missing somebody here that's five right that's not a lot yeah. there is actually mm. scope to keeping eddie in the mix like if this if he had three years to go on his contact contract and we were keeping him around great um i just wouldn't sign yeah. him up as one of our two strikers and on a new contract but like, even if we get two strikers, I think we're sh- in in multiple competitions, we're kind of short still.
1: Yeah, I mean, l- l- let's remember, too, part of the calculation is always what, what the player wants to do. And yep. the club has to think about the club first. But if you said to Eddie and Kedia, we need to keep you around as an emergency option, and we, we think we can give you 10% of our minutes next season, he's not going for that. Clive, final thought on, on midfield, and then uh, we're going to... Yeah. Turn it over to Tim to talk women's
3: football. Yeah, a couple of bits there um, with the Eddie thing. I think it's the right time for him to go, and for him. You know, for us, we could stick him in a corner, right? And, and uh, we can use him on top of the left. We can use him as centre-forward. We can use him in cup games. For us, it absolutely works. Do you know what I mean? It works. Mm-hmm. But um, I think for him, he needs to do something else. On the centre-midfield thing, with midfield, I think, again, I think about the player attributes – and what we don't have and as for what I spoke about on the Patreon pod the other day is I wanna see a carrier from centre midfield. I want to see someone that can carry, that can drive, that can break up play and play in an unstructured game. We have lots of passing structure, we need some unstructured box to box ability. And Ishaka's gonna be around still and party's gonna be around and Samba needs to develop into party. We don't need three sixes. We need an eight that can drive, right? So from purely attributes point of view I would flick that around, and from a forward point of view, I think we need a tall forward. That's my that's my bias. We need a tall forward, whether it's from the left or from the centre, because we don't have that. So I look at the squad and think what attributes we don't have and think, Eddie, Martelli same. Do you know what I mean? It doesn't matter. Um, we don't have a tall forward. Whether it's a wing forward or centre forward, we don't have it, so we need to go and buy it. And that's how I would approach it, so...
1: Yep, well said. All right, let's leave it there uh, and turn it over to Tim to talk about what should be a really exhilarating final day of the women's season as well. Clive's on Twitter at ClivePFC. Thanks, Clive.
3: Thank you very much.
1: Paul's on Twitter uh, at pause, pause. Woohoo! Yeah, and I mean, look, the, the game on Sunday is going to absolutely be electric, Clive, so enjoy that. I think it's going to be a brilliant atmosphere. Let's go on and win it well. Uh, let's see Liverpool rack up 10 goals. Who knows? Maybe 20. Uh, is that asking too much? We'll see. All right, so. Just a quick break here to turn it over to Tim and then I'll be back at the end to say goodbye. So stay with us.
4: Sorry that I can't be on um, another main pod. Very boring reason that basically I just moved house recently and until I can sort out um, my office space and things like that, it's actually very difficult to record. I have to hit a sweet spot between my daughter not being home but not being asleep as well. Um, and those times don't tend to be very uh, US friendly, U.S. time zone friendly. Um, but that should change next week because my office space should be sorted anyway. I thought what I'd do for this pod is just try and put a little bit of context around Arsenal women um, at the moment. Most of you, I think, will have seen that because Tottenham get battered every single place they go to... Uh, Tottenham women came to the Emirates On Wednesday evening And they got battered Um, 3-0 I I guess I wanted to put A little bit of context And a little bit of background around that game And also what it means ramifications wise Let let me deal with the ramifications first Because that's the shortest part So it basically means That the last game of the WSL season Is this Sunday Arsenal are one point behind Chelsea At the top of the league Arsenal play away at West Ham Chelsea play at home to Manchester United. Now, Arsenal should win at West Ham. I say should because you can't take anything for granted. Chelsea will probably beat Manchester United, I'm afraid. But... It's it's not necessarily an easy fixture for them. Arsenal drew at home to Manchester United. In fact, Manchester United are the only team that didn't lose away at Arsenal in the WSL this season. Otherwise, Arsenal would have had a perfect record. And United have to win to have a chance of finishing in third, which would qualify them for the Champions League. Now, unfortunately, that's not entirely in their own hands because Manchester City have got a relatively easy game at home to Reading. And if they win that, they get the Champions League spot. So that that might take a little bit of wind out of um, United Sales, but nevertheless, they, they have to win as it stands, and they're a good team. So there's some hope. Um, I, I don't think it'll honestly happen, but um we'll see. We live in hope. So that's that's the kind of the picture with the WSL title race, and then the season will end. Um and then we'll have the Euros in July, and then the WSL season will start again in September. Now, a little bit of context around the North London derby at the Emirates. And um, again, Tottenham got battered because that's what they do. But also because in the women's game, Spurs are nowhere near Arsenal's level. I mean, they're not near Arsenal's level historically in the men's game, but they're nowhere near in the women's game. So, you know, in the women's game, Arsenal have won 14 league titles. Um, Again, context, they've only been a going concern since 1987. Uh, That's more than anyone else um, in terms of league titles. 14 FA Cups, more than anyone else. Um, A Champions League, more than anyone else in Britain, um, certainly. So, whereas Spurs only became like a top flight team two years ago. um, Well, three seasons ago, actually. And for most of their history before that, they were like floating around the third and fourth tiers. They have... You know, grudgingly, to their credit, put more money into their women's team this year. And they are a much better team this year. So they're going to finish either fifth or sixth in the league. And it's a league of 12 teams. So they're they're coming up. They're doing better. They finished eighth last year. And they're they're getting gradually more competitive. Still some way off Arsenal's level. So... One of the, the discussions that happens a lot around this game is the extent to which you can actually call it a rivalry. Spurs women have never beaten Arsenal women. They've taken a draw once and to be fair, that was in the reverse fixture back in November and they were very close to winning Arsenal equalised in stoppage time to take a draw away from home. Um, but in terms of xG for that game, I think Arsenal built up about two point one xG, and for Spurs it was like I don't know zero point eight, and that was because their goal was an open goal basically. So you know they they were they were still pretty lucky to get a draw. But considering they were winning in the ninety third minute, but you know the 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 fact remains that. Other than that They've never come close To beating Arsenal And so a lot of the The discussion that happens In the women's game is Well To what extent actually Is this a derby Because There's not really much Of a history between the teams They hadn't played each other That often Now they're beginning to They're beginning to get Those those league games Every season They played each other In the FA Cup Earlier this season Arsenal won 5-1 um, Because Tottenham get battered Everywhere they go and so, you know, there's there's a lot of kind of, I guess, like debate around the marketing of it. Because on one hand, you know, marketing it as the North London derby, as a rivalry, has like a real value. And this is the fourth game that took place at the Emirates this season, and it's the biggest crowd. So there was, there was Chelsea back in September. That was a league game, which Arsenal won. That was 9,000. Um, There was Barcelona in the Champions League. That was also 9,000. There was Wolfsburg in the Champions League and that was 6,000. On Wednesday night at the Emirates, there were 13,000 there. Now, actually... The game was supposed to take place in March and it was going to be on a Saturday afternoon during the men's international break and actually the forecast for that particular day was really good as well. We had a spell of really warm weather at the end of March and it was going to be about 22,000 that would have come to the original game. But Tottenham cried it off. They had, I think, like two COVID cases and that was enough to get the game postponed, and this is a theme that Jonas Idavell, the Arsenal manager, has warmed to a lot this season. Um, he's been very critical of clubs getting games called off, and Arsenal haven't asked for any games to be called off. And he's basically said, other than in utterly extraordinary circumstances, he'd never do it as a point of principle. And he's been—he said that you know the league needs to sort this out in terms of teams just crying off games because they have a couple of players gone. So there there was a little bit of that needle and Jonas is not afraid of some needle. Um, For example, in his press conference last week, he was asked about Chelsea winning at the weekend and his answer, and I quote, was, I didn't worry about Chelsea getting all their games called off in January when Sam Kerr was at the Asia Cup and I don't worry about them now um, this is a reference to Chelsea having a couple of games postponed in January. Now, in January, there was the Asia Cup, um, which Australia, Japan, um, Korea um, and New Zealand participated in, um, among other nations as well. Um, and, and it meant that like the big teams lost their Australian, Japanese and Korean players. So Arsenal have three Australian players and a Japanese player. They lost all of them for the whole of January. Uh, Chelsea's best player Sam Kerr is Australian and so Chelsea had a couple of games postponed in January which Sam Kerr then didn't miss Um, and so you know Jonas was taking a bit of a pot shot about that but anyway the point is when Arsenal played Chelsea Barcelona and Wolfsburg all of those teams are far far better than Tottenham with far bigger players. You know Barcelona are the possibly the best sports team in the world at the moment. Wolfsburg won the Champions League twice and get to the latter stages every year. You know Chelsea, regrettably, are a very good team, but it was Tottenham that drew in the numbers, um, and and so that shows you that there is you know, great value in kind of marketing this as a North London derby and as a rivalry. But in the women's game, it isn't really because it's so one-sided. Um, historically, and even at the moment um, in the WSL and the cups, Tottenham just you know struggle to lay a glove on Arsenal, really, and they they couldn't last night either. Um, and three nil was. I haven't seen the XG, but I I think the XG probably would have been about three nil to be honest, albeit actually Spurs missed a penalty, so that would have brought their XG up a little bit. Um, and so there is this kind of debate about well, like to what extent is it right to market? what are essentially remnants from the men's team and superimpose them onto the women's teams. Now, it works, but then there's the argument about, well, but is it, is it, is it really a rivalry? Are we just borrowing something? Are we taking agency in history away from the women's game here? And so there's, it's a very interesting debate, and personally, I don't know what the answer to it is. Um, but the the result, I think, is there for all to see. The record attendance for any WSL game, so the league's been going since 2011, is Spurs v Arsenal in November 2019, when 38,000 people turned up at Tottenham Stadium. Doubtless it was because that was the first year of Tottenham Stadium and it was the first chance for a lot of people to go, but nevertheless, it drew in numbers. So... It's 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 really quite interesting but, but I guess what happened last night To make it feel a bit more like a rivalry Is basically Tottenham were, were filthy <laughs> And this is one of the things um, Jonas Eidevald talked about before the game He said he expected a lot of fouls That there were a lot of fouls in the reverse fixture Back in November And um, Jonas... As, as ever on form in the post match press conference, and he said very very undiplomatically, he said, "Yeah, this this is a battle of clubs, a battle of ideologies, a battle of styles, and I'm just glad the football won." Um, there was at one point an absolutely appalling over the top of the ball into the shin challenge by Josie Green, the Spurs midfielder on Valti, which really really could have like snapped Leo Valti's leg in two um, it was like a Martin Taylor style on, Eduard, on Eduardo but thankfully uh, Leah was okay and got up um, but uh, and is somehow not sent off for that and there ensued a bit of a melee um, and what's really interesting as well is the WSL Facebook page when they put up the highlights of the game today even though that melee happened halfway through the second half they put it at the front Of the kind of YouTube highlights video, and the thumbnail for that video is an image of Katie Arsenal's Katie McCabe kind of um, inviting the whole Spurs team out for a fight, Um, and I think that really shows you first of all it says something, I think about the way women's football should be marketed. Historically, there's been a lot of Disneyfication. There's been a lot of, oh, this is you know this is quite nice for little girls, and it's like little like Disney princesses playing football and and actually like when you watch it it's elite level sport you know participated in by very very competitive athletes Um, and it was really interesting to see the WSL Facebook page I think rightly kind of go front and centre with look at the fight that happened because that really draws people in but what What's quite interesting about that is uh, something that Jonas was asked about afterwards was: oh, d- Does it feel a bit more like a rivalry now? Now there was like quite a scrappy game with some, you know, some unacceptable tackling and things like that, and uh, and and that and you know, a suggestion that some of the players don't like each other and stuff like that. And so, it's. Uh, I mean, I guess in one respect, it's it's still not like a sporting rivalry, you know, because Tottenham got battered. Um, as they do everywhere they go. But there, there's kind of an argument, you know, well, there's 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 a bit of needle appearing in these games now. The two WSL games between the teams have been, you know, uh, largely because of Tottenham's tactics, but they've been bitty, they've been kind of um, a bit niggly. And so there's, there's this kind of, I guess, this sense that it, maybe it is turning into a bit more of a derby, Um, and it was interesting I I tweeted out a picture of Katie McCabe like you know throwing some haymakers and you know someone tweeted me I thought it was really interesting said at the beginning of the game I felt like I was in the theatre but by the end you know I felt like I was watching Arsenal-Tottenham because Tottenham's tactics really pissed me off um, and that that's that's like really quite interesting. The fact that you know, as as a sporting game, it was attack v defense. Arsenal won three nil. Could have been four or five nil. Spurs weren't really in it as an attacking force. But what drew people in was the fact that Tottenham were being quite dirty. Um, And that made people feel a bit of enmity Um, and and obviously that's really important to the Derby experience. So yeah, just just some kind of some rambling thoughts um, last night on what what I think that means. Largely, I think, for the purposes of marketing um, the women's game effectively and the marketing of a North London Derby in particular.
1: Okay. That'll do it. Thanks to Tim for giving us that little update as well. And I hope you enjoyed the episode and just thank you so much for being here. We love you for being a part of this community and listening to this podcast. And it's just such a great opportunity to engage with everybody, whether it's on social media or hopefully seeing you in London, uh, hopefully future live events and other places as well. And more than anything, just want you to know how much it means. And if you do leave those reviews, we'll be picking the winners, um, sometime next week for the free Patreon. So thank you for that. Really looking forward to being in London in a couple weeks. I'm on the mend. I can't wait to be there, and hopefully it's going to be an exciting weekend. A lot of that comes down to what happens this weekend. So come on, Arsenal. Know you can do it. Uh, Big, big win needed on Sunday. But, of course, Liverpool, do your job. That comes up first on Saturday. Hope you're doing well, everybody. We love you, we will talk to you after Liverpool 10s, (laughs) Fursnil.